You're listening to the PFWC podcast with me, Carly Compton, a podcast created to help you learn strategies to overcome that bully inside your head, ways to practice self-love, awareness and understanding of eating disorders, how to embrace the body you have been given and develop a healthy relationship with food, exercise, and most importantly, yourself. Here at the PFWC podcast, we find it important to create a safe space and a place for individuals to come to learn how to create that lifestyle that works for them. We're dropping comparisons, fighting unrealistic beauty standards, and coming together to show the world that all bodies are beautiful and that healthy looks different on everyone. Sit back, relax, and get ready to grow together. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the PFWC podcast. I'm so excited for today's episode. I'm sitting down with Amanda. Amanda is someone who I've been following for quite some time on social media, um, especially when I decided to go into the therapy world, the mental health world. Um, Amanda was one of the first accounts that I started following. And so I'm really excited to have her here today to have a really empowering and in-depth conversation about mental health, about working in the mental health field, um, and all of the amazing stuff that Amanda's doing. So welcome, Amanda. I'm really excited to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. Yes. I'm so excited. So for any listeners who don't know who you are or who aren't familiar with you, would you mind just giving us um, a brief little introduction of who Amanda is? Absolutely. So I'm Amanda White, or if you are on Instagram, you might know me as at therapy for women. I am a licensed mental health therapist. I own a group practice called therapy for women, which is based in Philly, but it has um, therapists across the country. Um, I'm also sober and I really kind of specialize in, um, addiction, you know, therapy, especially the overlap between, um, substance use and, uh, eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And I have a book that's called not drinking tonight that really kind of addresses that overlap. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I'm so excited to get into that because the conversation around, um, addiction and eating disorders or substance abuse and eating disorders is so interesting to me. And it's something that I am going to be honest, I'm not super familiar with. I'm familiar with them separately, but I'm not familiar with them together. Um, I mean, it makes sense how substance abuse and eating disorder or the, you know, that addiction side of eating disorders can kind of go hand in hand. Um, So really, really excited to get into that with you today. Um, But first question um, is how long have you been in the mental health field? I have been in the mental health field for about eight years now, I believe. Um, I'm like trying to remember (laughs) if you count my internship and going to grad school and stuff like that. Um, So yeah, my practice is a little over five years old. I was an addiction therapist um, at a rehab for two and a half years before Mm -hmm. that and, you know, had my internship and was in grad school. Yeah. And what made you choose this route, this career? Yeah. So I, uh, grew up not with great mental health. I struggled a lot growing up. I moved a lot growing up and I struggled with an eating disorder for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I saw tons of different therapists 
And, you know, I was young. I mean, my first therapist I saw, I was like 14 and I really didn't connect with them. I was a huge people pleaser. So I really mastered the art of just lying to all these therapists and they would think that I was getting better when I wasn't. Um, And then I would stop seeing them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until after I graduated college that I actually found a therapist who I connected with. And a big reason for that was that she shared that she was in recovery from a substance use or from a substance use disorder. And that just totally changed how I could relate to her. I didn't feel as much shame. I felt like I could open up and actually be honest. And, um, when I graduated college, I was like really in my addiction, really in my eating disorder, didn't know what I was going to do after college. I like moved home and was working at like, literally like, um, a frozen yogurt shop. I like had no idea what I was going to do. And the experience was so transformative. It really inspired me to want to go back to school and become a therapist. And I had this moment of kind of feeling like if I could do what she did for other people, like my life would have value. Like I could actually get on board with doing that. And, and that's what I did. I love that. Yeah. I feel like that is such a common reason as to why individuals go into this field is because they either have lived experience with mental illness. Um, you know, they've struggled with some sort of, um, yeah, some sort of mental, mental health issue for, you know, majority of their life. And they they find this person, whether it's a therapist or a psychiatrist or just someone who works in a treatment center who yeah. has changed their life and empowered them. And, and they are like, I want to be that person for other people. Um, yes. So I, yeah, totally relate to that. I had people in my life when I was going through my recovery where I was like, I I didn't actually realize this was a career (laughs) (laughs) or I didn't know that this was even an option. Um, because growing up for me too, mental health wasn't really talked about. I didn't really know what jobs there were within the mental health field, um, until you kind of get into that and you're like, oh, there's actually careers here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, so you, you struggled with an eating disorder for most of your life. Yeah. Um, and was that the, the biggest, like the biggest thing you struggled with in terms of mental health or was there the alcohol and substance abuse as well? Um, and when was, did that kind of come about for you? Yeah. Yeah. So they really kind of spurred off of each other. Um, I was a competitive figure skater growing up. So it really like created mm-hmm. a foundation of eating disorder for sure. Yeah. Um, so I struggled with that a lot in high school and I always, I was bulimic. So I always knew like, there's some, like, I shouldn't be doing this, mm-hmm. you know, like I was purging a lot. So it was very clear to me that that was a problem. But when I started drinking, it took, I mean, I definitely had anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. underlying that. Um, But once I started drinking in high school, it felt like, oh my God, my, my social anxiety goes away. I, you know, can like care less about food. If I get really drunk, I can, you know, be more myself. And it just felt like this solution Mm -hmm. to my problems. And then I went to college and I found Adderall and that was like, 
the best solution that mm-hmm. I ever thought I could find. Mm-hmm. And I really quickly just spiraled into, you know, in my experience, once you start mixing things and concocting things to find the exact right mixture, you're down a, you're down a scary road. Mm-hmm. So, um, it just kind of blew up from there. Alcohol really took over my life. I became extremely depressed and suicidal at some point. And, you know, my bulimia was kind of right along with there. They would kind of ebb and flow. I would struggle more with my eating disorder and I would drink less and then I would drink more and be able to eat less kind of, and they just kind of went back and forth to the point where I never got a DUI because I wasn't drunk, but I got into three very serious car accidents in college. And it was like, I was under the influence. I just hadn't eaten and was like high on Adderall. Mm -hmm. And it's wild how much I think people don't understand. Like I was really able to write it off for myself as like, well, I wasn't drunk driving like mm-hmm. this, you know, this medicine is a prescription medicine. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, doing heroin. It's fine. And I was really able to lie to myself, even though there were very clear, huge consequences that were happening in my life, but I was able to be totally in denial about it to the point where when I graduated college, I knew I needed to work on my eating disorder, but I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol. I mean, mm-hmm. I kept drinking throughout being in grad school. And I actually, I mean, one of like my low bottom, like the time where I drank last, I mean, I was working in a drug and alcohol rehab and I would like show up to my rehab hung over. And I mm-hmm. thought I was so different than mm-hmm. them. And, um, I was lucky that, you know, the last night that I drank, I, I kind of had a moment where I woke up a little bit and could see, oh my God, like I, this is exactly the same. I'm going to keep going down this road. I'm not going to be able to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, but the denial was pretty, pretty wild. (laughs) Yeah. And I think one thing that comes up for me, especially when, you know, talking about being in college and the normalization of binge drinking in college, the normalization of blacking out and being so drunk when you're in college and, the normalization of Adderall and these prescription drugs and kind of what you were saying is like, I'm not doing anything illegal. Like this is all legal. I have a prescription for this. Um, That can be a really scary road, a really scary path to navigate. Um, So I'm curious, like, do you, do you have experience kind of now working with college college students or college age students who are kind of experiencing something similar to you when you were in college of feeling that sense of kind of, um, I'm not doing anything wrong or, you know, not it, them finding it very difficult to come to terms with what they are actually experiencing. Absolutely. I mean, and I, that's kind of like the whole premise of my book isn't a memoir. It's, it's a self-help book. Mm-hmm. but I do share my story in the introduction. And that is kind of the whole premise of, I did experience in college kind of more dramatic drinking, but when I was out of college, I did stop doing Adderall and I, I didn't drink every day. I wasn't getting into car accidents anymore. My, no one thought I had a problem. I mean, when I told my parents I was going to stop drinking, they were like, why? 
why are you going to make your life harder? (laughs) Yeah. No one was like, yay, we know this is a problem. Um, And I think that's the case for a lot of women, a lot of people. I mean, especially like you were talking about in college, it is so normalized. If I would have told any of my friends in college that I needed to stop drinking, they would have been like, what? We all drink, you know, the same. Blacking out is normal. Um, So that is a big specialty in my work. And it's why I'm really passionate about really like you don't need to call yourself an alcoholic to stop Mm -hmm. drinking. You don't need to fit criteria to stop drinking. Like you don't need to be bad enough. You can choose to realize that it's not serving you anymore and you can go and make decisions from there. Mm -hmm. And that kind of reminds me of that same concept with eating disorders in terms of like waiting until you are in a really bad place or you're really sick before you reach out for help because there have been so many parts of eating disorders that have been normalized. Um, and you know, like the DSM five criteria makes it really hard for people to actually get that diagnosis. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I think of when you say that is that, that reminder of like, you don't have to be, you don't have to have that label of having an eating disorder in order to get help or to start, you know, recovery. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what comes up for me when you, when you say that. Yeah. And in my book, I actually, I mean, when I, I thought about it this way too, of right. Ever since there's the term disordered eating, right. Ever Mm -hmm. since that has become a term, I feel like it has been able to reach people more. People have recognized that they don't need to meet all the criteria necessarily to struggle. And we don't have a word for that. So in my book, I, I talk about, I created the term disordered drinking. Cause I'm like, it's the mm-hmm. same thing. You can exhibit, you know, some behaviors of it. You can go through a time of your life. I would think, I would say for most people, they experience disordered drinking in college. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they necessarily have an alcohol use disorder or they will struggle with it for the rest of their life. But having that language is really important. Yeah. It's looking at that, those like unhealthy habits that are linked to drinking and linked to dieting and, um, those same similarities, you know, that we see in disordered eating and, and that, that makes it a lot clearer for me, disordered drinking. Um, I think that makes it, it's a great term for people to use in terms of, you know, not having that, that diagnosis of an alcohol disorder. Um, but having those, those kind of habits or routines that are unhealthy or, you know, aren't doing anything positive for you, um, that are linked to drinking, which like you said, we see a lot in college. Yes, absolutely. So going off of that, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of your work is done in, you know, looking at the relationship between substance abuse disorders and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to get into that. So first thing, how did you, how did you link those two? What what did that linkage look like for you? So they linked for me just personally, you Mm -hmm. know, having struggled with both. And I just really saw the overlap of, I would, you know, get one under, I mean, to be totally transparent, like I would get into recovery from an eating disorder 
then my alcohol would go way up. Then I would get my alcohol under control and then I would like get drunk and I would like binge and purge one night and I would relapse my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And it was such a yo-yo. And it wasn't until I was able to get into recovery from both that I really was able to maintain long-term recovery. And um, the other really big thing that that shaped this work for me is when I um, graduated from my master's degree and I got that job working at a drug and alcohol rehab, almost every woman, I specialize really in working with women and every woman that kind of came through that door would say they didn't have an eating disorder. They had, you know, maybe they had a couple symptoms here or there, but it was all just literally the, the rehab I worked for didn't accept eating disorder clients. But the second that we would actually, the second they were there more than a few weeks, all this stuff would come up. You would learn that they started doing drugs to control their weight, or they had a history of like purging and binging, or they had a, you know, history of, um, you know, starving themselves or things like that. All this stuff would come to the surface or they would start, you know, engaging in exercising way too much to try to control things. And it was so clear to me how high the overlap was. And then I did research on it and the overlap, I mean, on the low end, people will, will estimate 30%, but some of the estimates are like upwards of 55% is the overlap of substance use disorders Mm. and, um, and eating disorders. But a lot of rehabs really look at it as like food is a drug and sugar is a drug. And even the rehab I worked at, they would like do sugar-free everything. And they would try to, you know, not let people eat too many snacks and all of this stuff. And it was so wild because food is not the same mm-hmm. as, as alcohol. You can't live without food. You can mm-hmm. easily live without drugs. And I understood like the way that people are linking it is not correct in terms of if we talk about sugar addiction and food addiction and all of that. I mean, these people were malnourished. They hadn't been eating. So of course they were interested in eating more when they had been malnourished for years and years. And I really think of, um, when I've worked with nutritionists on this, they talk about kind of right. Like quantity of food is the most important thing first, when you're Mm -hmm. looking at, um, rebuilding kind of like nutrition, you can't talk about if someone doesn't have access, right, to to food, you can't talk about nutrients or eating specific foods if they don't have access to enough food. Um, So yeah, that really sparked it, personal and that experience. It was so devastating to watch how many women specifically would talk about how, you know, I'd rather be, um, I'd rather be, what is the phrase that they used to say? I would rather be, um, fat and, or I'd rather be skinny and high than fat and sober. Mm. And that was just, it was just wild to watch how many people would relapse and really struggle because of this barrier of healing their relationship with food. Mm -hmm. Because of that, that core fear of gaining weight, um, which, you know, is ingrained in us at pretty much birth. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And like the fat phobia, like they didn't have, I didn't even at the time, like 
they didn't have the language for understanding, mm-hmm. right? Like the fat, like that we are a fat phobic society, how that impacts them on a daily basis and all mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. And even that, you know, still people I feel like that I work with today are like, no, I'm not fat phobic because I don't look at other fat people and think, you know, anything bad about them. Right. I just don't want to be fat. Yeah. And it's like, no, that is internalized fat phobia. Fat phobia. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. That is internalized fat phobia. And yeah. it's always crazy how, you know, people are like, that's such a light bulb moment for them yeah. where, where they, you know, have that realization of like, oh, I never linked, I never linked that, those to each other. Um, so how did you find yourself navigating that space then, you know, working in at the, at the center you were working at and being in recovery from your eating disorder and kind of navigating some of those fat phobic ideas that were coming from, you know, your coworkers and people that you worked with there. How did you find yourself navigating that space? Yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely a challenge and something that, you know, it's like, once you understand fat phobia and intuitive eating and that whole world, it's really hard to unsee it. And it, it was really hard to watch people be restricted or limited from eating certain things or really like over, you know, the, a lot of times the patients would overly, you know, diagnose themselves as being a sugar addict or being addicted to this or addicted to that. Um, and it's hard because there is research out there that, that people use to support sugar addiction. And the research is not, when you dig into it, it is not good research. It's, Mm -hmm. it's all been done in mice and, you know, things like that. Um, and you know, it wasn't my center. It wasn't, you know, I, I worked with clients the best that I could, Mm -hmm. but, um, there was a lot of fat phobia. There was a lot of ideas about the best way to help people, but I was lucky that, um, part of my job, I worked in the short-term rehab for a little bit, and then I was moved over and I got to work with the long-term clients who stayed there for 90 days. So we got to, I had a lot more freedom and we got to do a lot more, um, digging and exploring into some of those deeper beliefs. And I did a lot of work around trying to help people understand, to give themselves like compassion during those first few months. And really, I think it's important to talk to people also about, you know, there's kind of a saying that you have to work on what's going to kill you first and just trying to prioritize getting into recovery from substances and not worrying about someone's weight or what they look like. And a lot of my work was also talking to parents, like parents Mm -hmm. would say terrible things to their kids. They would make comments and I would have to be the one to be like, not like you sent them here to get them sober. (laughs) Like that is priority number one. And Mm -hmm. you need to keep these comments to yourself. Yeah, definitely. And, and I see that a lot too, in the eating disorder field too, with my, my adolescent clients who are experiencing eating disorders and, you know, meeting with their parents and kind of me thinking in the back of my head, okay, this, this explains why this adolescent is experiencing and struggling so much with their relationship with food and their body is because at home, this is what they're hearing. Um, so I think that, you know, and I'm sure you can agree that education in terms of at home, that education at home, that education for parents regarding 
body image and fat phobia and really figuring out how to help individuals have that healthy relationship with food um, and to not feel as if their worth is connected to their weight and how to really unlearn those those behaviors, um, and those habits. Um, because for me personally, I saw that growing up, um, and my mom and my grandma and never did my mom say anything about my body specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, but I heard what she was saying about her body and what she was saying about her body was impacting the way that I viewed my body. Um, especially because I saw a lot of similarities in my, myself and my mom, as I got older and I was like, this is something my mom always said she hated. And so then I must hate that part about me. Um, so that, yeah, that convert, the conversation that goes on at home is so, so important Um, and critical for, you know, what adolescents are, you know, thinking those core beliefs, those, automatic thoughts that they, that they develop as they get older. Um, I think is something that's so important to, to talk about. So yeah, absolutely. What would you say was, so the hardest part, what would you say was the hardest part for you in terms of going from a space, like the center that you were working in Mm -hmm. and then going into this space that you're now in where you have your, you have therapy, the therapy for women center. Um, I'm sure you took a lot away in terms of what you did not want to do (laughs) um, at the therapy for women center. Um, So I'm curious if you want to touch a little bit on, you know, what that transition looked like for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. I, I did it not on a whim, um, but I did it very kind of like I was all in. I just jumped from one thing to the other. I was, you know, it was five years ago. So I feel like I would have been a lot more cautious now if I did it, but it was great that I, you know, kind of was fearless in that way. Um, I mean, the big thing that I took away was just my passion for working with women. Um, I really love working with women. I love working with that, like, um, young adult college, early after college population. I think it's a really hard time in a lot of our lives that we don't talk about. Um, it's a big transitional time. So that was really one of the biggest things is I kind of set my practice up to specialize in that. I mean, I had no idea that my practice would grow the way it has. It really, I always just expected it would just be me. Um, But one of the coolest things that I'm just so proud of is just that we do have like kind of a lot of different specialties so that, you know, if someone comes into treatment and they're seeing me and then they realize that they have more trauma, they need to work on. I have an, you know, we have EMDR therapists, we have grief therapists, we have OCD therapists, we have a psychiatrist and a nutritionist. And that's kind of my favorite thing is we um, can kind of attack all angles and really be a team because I think that's one of the biggest challenges of when you're getting therapy outside of a, you know, outside of outpatient or that's not inpatient essentially is kind of really having a team, especially with eating disorders that can support you and are all on the same page. Yeah. And having that all in one place, I feel like is so powerful because I think that's one of the, like you, like you're saying, that's one of the most difficult things for people is like, they go in for, 
you know, like one specific reason and then find out, okay, this will be really beneficial. So like EMDR, okay, we don't have someone who does EMDR here. Let me see if I can find someone else to refer you to. Um, so having all of that, I feel like in one place just makes it not only easier for you and your team, but also for the individual who's coming in for that support. It's like, do you need, you need this? Okay. We, we probably have someone who specializes in that. Um, and I think that just relieves so much stress for individuals who are looking for that support. Yeah. And it really like was especially helpful because all of our therapists, while they don't all specialize in eating disorders, like they're all like very educated on health at every size and fat phobia Mm -hmm. and all of these things. And it can be a real challenge to find like a psychiatrist who isn't making weird comments to you about your body or things like that. So, um, that's definitely something that I'm really proud of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's so incredible. And I think it's, it's, I mean, just watching it from an outsider's perspective, it, it, it's changing so many lives and it has changed so many lives. And I hope that that's something that you remind yourself of and your team reminds themselves of because it really is such a unique, a a unique idea. You know, I'm sure there are other treatment centers out there, but I feel like, you know, focusing on providing all of these different special specialties and um, all of that in one place is life-changing in so many Thank ways. You. Yeah. I really wish that I would have had something like that when <laughs> I was growing up. <laughs> I mean, I literally created it based on like, this is what I would have wanted. <laughs> so that's how yes. it's all been. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, you've talked a lot about, you work with women specifically. Um, I don't know a lot about the research in terms of substance abuse in women compared to like men. Um, I know that women experience eating disorders at a higher rate than men do. Um, but I'm curious, what does that research look like in, in that sense? Yeah. So, um, men still definitely struggle with substance use disorders more, uh, where women struggle with eating disorders more, but there is overlap. And one thing in like specifically that's been happening in the past five, 10 ish years is women have been drinking a lot more. So the alcohol consumption in women has gone up a lot. And just based on the nature of women's bodies, they are more sensitive to alcohol. And as a result, more and more women are actually struggling and having like liver failure, liver problems, things of that nature that they never really struggled with before because about, again, I think it was 10 years ago or so, uh, big out like alcohol companies really saw that there was, that there was, uh, an untapped market of women drinking. So there's been a huge push. And if you look at kind of advertisements over the last few years, there's been such a huge push for, drinking specifically targeting women like mm-hmm. wine i mean if you think about mock like cocktails and cans mm-hmm. are all really more i mean white claw was really marketed towards women i mean there's this new company that someone tagged me in that's literally called mom water yes yes is, yes yeah i mean mommy wine culture is such a huge mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. and women are really i mean the saddest thing to me is it's like instead of providing mothers with 
you know, paid time off, <laughs> childcare, all of these things that would actually help them. Alcohol companies are saying, no, the solution to your problems is to drink. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's been the big thing that I've been seeing. Yeah. So aside from that increase in advertising, um, is there any other, any other pieces of like evidence or things that, that, that women are experiencing that would contribute to that increase in consuming alcohol? Or do you feel like it's majority that advertising? I think a lot of it is advertising, which started it, but it's created this whole narrative, right? Of women's empowerment is drinking. Mm -hmm. Like women's empowerment is being able to match someone like beer for beer. Um, So that has, I think, created this like cultural idea that women want to keep up with men drinking now. And um, women can handle just as much alcohol as men. So I think that's a big thing. Um, And then separate from that, I think if we just think about the pandemic, I mean, women were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, especially mothers um, or caregivers. So I think that that has also, I mean, everyone drank a lot more during the pandemic. We saw, you know, drinking levels kind of skyrocket, but especially among women. And I think, I think if you really look at advertising too, and then the cultural narrative it creates and even Instagrams and TikToks and, you know, whether influencers are trying to sell it or not, alcohol really gets kind of we learn that alcohol is the solution mm-hmm. to our problems. Just like, like I did a, an analysis when I was doing research for my book and I've also done a presentation on it. And if you look at like the overlap of diet culture and alcohol culture, the message is boiled down to the same, right? Like diet culture is you'll be happy if you look, if you're thin, if you look like mm-hmm. this, all your problems will be solved. And alcohol culture says, you will be happy if you drink this drink, all of your problems will be solved. And if you look at, I did like an analysis too, with like Kim Kardashian and like, Mm -hmm. she's done alcohol promo and also right. Like tons of diet promo. And yeah, the message, the message is the same. That is, I mean, it's feels like it should be obvious, (laughs) but down like that, it's kind of like mind blowing to see the similarities in that. I, like I said, I haven't really, I don't have as much experience in substance abuse or alcohol um, as I do in eating disorders, but hearing you talk about it, it really, it really does show how similar that the messaging is, the culture is, the emotions and feelings behind it are very, very similar. Um, And I think it's so important that people are able to see those similarities because I think there, there's a lot less shame around the alcohol side of yep. like, okay, using alcohol to solve your problems yep. um, compared to, you know, the shame that could be associated food. with the diet culture. Yeah. yeah. So using yeah. food to solve your problems or being thin to solve your problems. Yeah. Um, and so I think looking at them, you know, as equals or seeing like the similarities in that it's like, oh, wow, we really do live in a society where alcoholism has been normalized in a lot of ways. 
Um, or just like the overconsumption of alcohol has been normalized, um, kind of like, you know, going full circle to what we were talking about at the very beginning, um, in terms of being in college and, and all of that being normalized. Um, so that is so interesting to me how those, those align. Um, yeah. And when you think about, sorry, Carly, (laughs) when you think about even right, like then you look at a specific ad that's doing both, right? You see mm-hmm. the ads like White Claw where now everyone's doing all these seltzers now, right? It is like the epitome of diet culture and alcohol culture because it's like, we're gonna sell you this alcohol that's gonna make you feel great, but we also want you to help you be skinny. So it's gonna be sugar-free, low-cal, all of these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or these influencers you know, that are talking about how they don't drink soda and they don't drink anything but they're drinking green juice with like vodka or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're making a healthy cocktail. Yeah. It's just like the epitome of, we want you to be thin because we know that you care about being thin, but we also want you to be able to drink. So you're going to drink this, you know, low-cal, no sugar, spiked seltzer. (laughs) Yeah. And also the, the um, media behind it, like the marketing that goes behind alcohol is usually like very thin, attractive women who are probably in a bikini. Like if you think back to like beer commercials, like I think of girls in like American flag bikinis (laughs) who are very thin um, because that's what men wanted to see. And that was very, you know, that was very appealing to men who drank beer. Um, But if you look at the other side of that, it's like women who are seeing those commercials are like, oh, I need to look like that girl in order to be able to, you know, in order to consume this alcohol or to consume this beer, I need to be thin and I need to, you know, be attractive. And so I think that's another way in which they overlap too, is like, even if it's subconscious for a lot of people, like you see the ad for, let's say white claw, and it's a, it's a group of, you know, thin white women who are on a boat and they're in bikinis and, you know, a woman sees that, or even a teenager adolescent sees that. And they're like, I want to be that girl. I want to be on a boat in a bikini, thin, drinking a white claw. Um, and that's so toxic. It's so toxic. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right. Like men love these women, men want these women and all the women want to be them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. So one last question. Um, cause I think this is going to be really interesting to a lot of listeners, um, is what advice would you, what advice would you have for people who don't necessarily want to give up alcohol? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who enjoy drinking leisurely. I'll admit I enjoy drinking alcohol leisurely. Um, so what advice would you give to those people in terms of navigating that and what kind of to look out for, what signs to look out for that, you know, we need to be like, oh, this, this may be starting to go down an unhealthy path. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to be clear too. I'm not someone who's like abstinence only alcohol is poison. Mm -hmm. No one should ever drink. Um, and I think there are a lot, and I'm all for like challenging that and challenging. It doesn't need to be all or nothing necessarily. Mm -hmm. And one of my best pieces of advice is to start getting interested in making mocktails. 
Mm-hmm. There are so many amazing alcohol replacements out there now. They have alcohol-free beer that tastes great. They have they even have like de-alcoholized wine, which is wine mm-hmm. just with the alcohol removed. Um, so it's like if you want to explore this a little bit, you could try some new mocktails. You could even, if you want to kind of drink less, maybe when you're drinking for a night, kind of cut half of the amount that you were going to drink and do some mocktails instead. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great way to kind of dip your toe in and just like get curious. I think it's a really helpful place. Um, It'll help you understand what you are reaching for. If, if you, sometimes we think we need that drink because we believe, right? Like this is the thing that's going to calm me down. This is my ritual at the end of the day. But sometimes it's not even about the alcohol that we want. It's really the ritual of closing the end of the day. Mm-hmm. We want a moment of relaxation. We want a moment of shutting off our brain. And sometimes, you know, I tell people, when do you feel relaxed? Is it after you've had that drink? Or is it when you sit down on your couch, pour the glass of wine, and you're like, ha, ah. mm-hmm. right? A lot of times it's actually before you even take a sip. Mm-hmm. So we can create that with other, with, you know, alcohol-free beverages, and you can experiment and see if that works for you. Um, you can cut down from there. And to me, the biggest signs to look for, if, if you're not sure, are kind of how hard or easy is it to moderate? Mm-hmm. Um, what does the pattern look like? Are you needing to continue to drink more to feel the same effect? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the big signs. How is it impacting your life? If it starts to be more and more important and you start to, you know, deprioritize your goals, your friends, your, you know, work, that's a pretty good sign that things, there might be, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, a warning sign that there may be something you want to explore. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that's the, the point that you made in terms of that ritual is more of what is relaxing to us and and instead of necessarily being that alcohol it's more of the process of preparing it and knowing like okay I'm about to have this drink and it means that I'm done with work for the day and I'm going to be able to sit down on the couch and turn on you know whatever I want on television and enjoy this drink um compared to you know it being solely focused around the actual alcohol um, that's within the drink. I think that I relate to that a lot because I think for me, it's like, if I'm cooking dinner, I'm like, Mm -hmm. especially if I'm like last night, I was like, I'm having pasta. And I really, I have this like really good bottle of wine in the fridge. And I just want to have a glass of wine to enjoy with this pasta. And when I think about it, it's like, it's not that I was trying to feel the alcohol or feel, you know, like tipsy at all it was solely because I wanted something to sip on that felt like wine that I thought complemented my pasta really well. Yeah. And that could be replaced with a non-alcoholic, a non-alcoholic wine. Um, so that's, yeah, very, very good advice. I think for a lot of people. Um, and one thing that comes up for me lastly, is that, you know, those warning signs of like really checking in with yourself of like, are you using alcohol to, like subdue your appetite, um, which I think can be so common for a lot of people, um, especially in the summer, 
because mm-hmm. we're outside a lot more and we're, you know, going to the beach or we're going to the lake or we're going, we're going to be on on the boat or whatever that looks like. We want to not be bloated. We want to yep. avoid bloat. Yep. We want to feel good. And so I feel like I've seen even just within my friends, you yeah. know, people who are like, you know, I'm just going to have something really light in the morning and then I'm just going to drink because yeah. I know that if I'm full of alcohol, I'm not going to want food or, you know, I'm not going to eat something that's going to make me bloated because I'm going to be drinking a white claw, which has zero sugar, zero calories, just yeah. like what we were mentioning. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good warning sign too, of like, if you're finding yourself having those thoughts of, oh, I want to drink because it's going to distract me from being hungry. Um, red flag. Yeah. <laughs> red flag. <laughs> Agreed. So that's just another thing that comes up. Um, for me in terms of all of that. Um, well, Amanda, this has been so like, I have learned so much within this conversation. I'm, you know, I've been following you for a while and you talk a lot about substance abuse. You talk a lot about sobriety, eating disorders, all of that on your page. But I feel like this conversation today really like connected a lot of things for me. And I hope that it has done the same for listeners. Um, So thank you so much for being here, taking some time out of your very busy schedule to chat with me um, and to share your knowledge and experience with um, the PFWC community. Absolutely. Yeah. And if anyone wants to learn more about this, I talk about this a lot in my book. I have like exercises in my book. The book is called not drinking tonight and it's available on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. Amazing. Yeah. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. Um, but before we wrap up, would you mind just sharing with the community where everyone can find you? Yeah. So you can, again, follow me on Instagram. That's probably the easiest at therapy for women. Um, if you're interested in therapy services, my therapy practice is therapy for Um, And you can also check out my book and courses and things like that on my website, which is amandaewhite.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being here. Um, And I can't wait for this episode to go live and to hear, you know, what listeners are taking away from this. Um, And listeners, please feel free to leave a rating or review if this episode resonated with you. It is so helpful um, for the podcast and so much appreciated. So thank you all so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.